the series, uh, kind of what we're going to focus on is how God grows our faith. And today we're going to talk a lot about trials. And uh, anytime we start a new book study, I want to take just a minute to kind of give you some background on the book and kind of who wrote it and when it was written and kind of the purpose of it so that we get the big picture of what James is trying to do through this, uh, through this letter. Uh, you see in James chapter 1, verse 1, that uh, it's identified, the, the writer, the author is identified as James. And um, and there's, there's really two options that, that different scholars will take when they talk about who, which James is this. James was a common name in that time. But there was two people that were, were widely known as James. Uh, one was James, the brother of John. They were both disciples. They were called the sons of Zebedee. And some people will point to, to that James and say, well, maybe that was the author of the book of James. But he was, he was martyred very, very early. I mean, right after the, the, the church's birth at Pentecost, it's not long before the church starts to scatter. And, and that James is killed by Herod. He's put to the sword. And so we don't think that he really had the time to, to pen this letter. There's a second James who is not really that well known prior to Pentecost, and that is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, he is probably the oldest after Jesus in, in the, the family, and we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Uh, and James, this half-brother of Jesus, uh, was probably the one that wrote this letter. He, at first, was a, a denier of Christ. Remember, uh, the, the brothers and sisters didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. There was times where Jesus was teaching and doing stuff, and his family, his mother and his brothers, came to retrieve him and take him home and keep him from embarrassing the family. This is the James who was that doubter, that denier, who becomes a disciple of Jesus. James uh, rejects Jesus at first, but then um, he turns around. And, and, and really, it's right after Jesus' resurrection. The Bible says that Jesus appeared to James and then to the apostles. And we think it's at that moment that James was convinced that Jesus really was who he says he was. This half-brother of Jesus uh, is, is converted. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. As you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see James's name pop up again and again. Acts chapter 12 and chapter 15, chapter 21, in all these different places through the book of Acts. Galatians mentions him, and he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And, and as you study Bible history, you know that the, the church of Christ was, was birthed in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and then it spread through persecution around the world. Well, James becomes the leader, the pastor, if you will, of that Jerusalem church. And he is, he is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was killed and martyred in A.D. 62. So we know that sometime between when Jesus died, about A.D. 33 to 62, this letter was penned. Most scholars would believe that it was written around 44 to 49 A.D. The book of James is probably the very first book of our New Testament that was written. It was written before the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It's before the, the, the Jerusalem council where they decide, what are we going to do? You know, Peter's gone out and he's talking to Gentiles, non-Jews, about Jesus. And they're receiving the Holy Spirit and, and God's confirming that they're saved. How do we do that? Because the Jewish faith had always been just Jews. And the Jerusalem council answered that question, but James doesn't address it here. So that leads us to think that this was written before the Jerusalem council and before this explosion of the, the gospel that goes to the, uh, to the Gentile world. So James starts off by giving us his name. He describes himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, which is kind of cool. He's kind of humble in his approach. He doesn't say, hey, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus. We grew up together. I knew all about him, and let me tell you what I know. James doesn't do that. He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not many brothers would call their brother Lord unless you were convinced that that's who he was. 
Most of us have sibling rivalries that go back and forth, and we're always, you know, working on that pecking order, but not James here. He says, listen, I was the denier, but I've come to understand that he was the Lord. He was the Messiah. He was the one that comes. He's writing his book to Jewish converts who've been scattered now throughout. And so he says, I'm James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Because, Jew, because James is writing to Jews, he's going to use a lot of language that's going to come out of the Old Testament. A lot of uh, references in the Old Testament, uh, four direct quotes from the Old Testament in this short book, Forty, more than 40 references and allusions to things that come out of the, uh, the Old Testament. And so he uses this. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm writing to the church of Jesus that's been scattered. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes. That's how the Jews knew themselves. He's writing to a Jewish audience. It's going to have Jewish overtones. It's filled with all these overtones. He's going to call the gospel the, the law of liberty. He's going to call uh, those who walk away from Christ uh, as, as those who are committing adultery. He's going to use a lot of terminology, like he'll call the, the place where they gather the synagogue. Uh, scholars have compared the book of James to like the book of Proverbs. And if you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, you know it's just a book packed with wisdom. Little short, pithy statements that are all kind of connected and, 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 and give you wisdom to know how to live the life. Proverbs was, was a book that Solomon wrote to his son saying, let me tell you what it means to be a man. Let me tell you what it means to be a God follower. And James takes that same kind of tone. But James does something kind of interesting. Again, if it's the first book in the New Testament that's written, it's written before Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all the Gospels. But one of the things that James does, and we'll try to point this out throughout the series, is James builds this book off of the Sermon on the Mount, the first time Jesus really gathers a crowd and lays out in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He's going to lay out this, this, this vision for what his kingdom's going to look like. And, and all the way through the book of James, James goes back and, and, and hints at that Sermon on the Mount. So what James is doing is the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of theological. James is going to give us a practical day-to-day way to live out the Sermon on the Mount. So it's really kind of a cool thing to see how he's going to build upon that. He kind of connects the dots, and we'll try to do that throughout this series. Um, James, the book of James kind of struggled to get into the Bible, if you will, when they were trying to decide what books go into the Bible and what don't. Because James was not real doctrinal, like the book of Romans and, and other books like that, some said, well, we don't really know if, if, we, if this should be included in, in the Bible or not. But what James is is just this practical commentary, a practical manual for Christian liver, living. And what James is trying to do, and this is really important for us, especially those of us that grew up in the Bible Belt, James is trying to show the difference between being religious and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a big difference. In the South, if you ask somebody, are you a Christian? They go, yeah, my, my mama, my papa, they went to church. I'm a Christian. Or yeah, I grew up in the South and I believe there's a God, so I'm a Christian. James is going to show the difference between this, this head knowledge that, yeah, there's a God out there and this deep relationship that changes your whole life. So in this series, we're going to really begin to unpack the difference between uh, following rules and following Christ. The difference in trying to keep some kind of formula that would manipulate God and just being in a relationship where we submit ourselves to the Lord. James knew that the law would bring death, but that Jesus brought life. And so a lot of these things are going to be brought out in this series. And, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I, I just want to give you this background and, and to show you. But the, the main purpose that James writes is that many people in his day were, were Jewish people. Um, and they had settled for kind of a counterfeit religion, if you will. 
uh, and a counterfeit faith. It looked religious on the outside, but it lacked the saving power to transform their lives. There are so many in our world today that have the appearance of morality, the, the appearance of, of, of good deeds, but they haven't put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that, that, that all that outward stuff really doesn't matter until the inside gets fixed. And so James is going to focus on the inside. In fact, what we're going to see today is that he heads straight for our heart. He doesn't waste any time at all going straight for the heart and said, let me, let me show you what this looks like. So James focuses upon the heart and the transformation that comes when we fall in love with Jesus and we begin to follow him. Um, again, it's written very, very early, probably about 10 years after Christ was crucified. And, uh, and again, focusing upon the Jews who had made this transition out of Judaism into their their faith walk with Jesus. Because of that transition, there was a great persecution that broke out against them. And many of them were scattered. And and, and James still feels this pastorly call, even though they're not in his church building every week, to write a letter that will will remind them of what it means to walk in a in a transformed way. So he serves as, as the pastor of this Jerusalem church. He he's to focus not just on more rules, but upon this relationship with Jesus and the transformation that comes from that. So as we walk through this series, he's going to give us a series of tests to, to take ourselves, kind of a, a homework quiz, if you will, that you would take home and look at and go, is this a reality in my life? If this is a mark of what it means to walk with Jesus, am I doing that? If this is how a Christian is to respond when, when faced with a crisis, is that the way that I respond? And it helps us to distinguish whether what we have is genuine or whether it's a counterfeit. And so uh, he wants us to make sure that what we have is the real deal. So the first test that he's going to give us is seen here in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I want to look at that today, probably come back next week and unpack a little bit more out of this. But Look, you, you see the outline. We've got a long way to go, so I'm going to talk real fast, uh, as fast as a Texan can talk. And uh, we're going to walk through this together and see what we can do. So the first test that he gives us is how we respond to trials. And he says how you respond to a trial, not just externally, but how you respond inside. There's many of us that are stoic on the outside. Something happens bad and we don't show any emotion. We don't show any grief. We don't show any sadness. We don't show excitement. Our personality is just kind of a flat line. And, and, and he's not talking about that. He's saying, I want to know what goes on inside of you when trials happen on the outside. Not just do you smile and say, oh, God bless you. And then you walk off and you kick the dirt and you're mad and you're, you're, you're fuming on the inside. That's not what he's talking about because Let's just be honest, especially in church, we get really good at covering up. We, we found good ways to be bad on the inside, okay? So I can be fuming on the inside, but I can be smiling on the outside. And James is like, no, no, we're not going to worry about the outside right now. We're going to go straight to the heart because it's out of the heart that everything else is going to flow. So he says, let's talk about how we respond to trials. And again, he, he doesn't pull any punches. James starts and he goes straight for the heart. Look what he says. I want you, verse 2, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if we were to ask for an honest response today, how many of you get excited and count it all joy every time you have a trial? Most of us would go, yeah, not me. It's not the natural human response, is it? But God's calling us not to a natural response, but to a supernatural response. And he's not just calling us to pretend to be happy 
when on the inside we're not. He's talking about joy, which goes way beyond happiness. Happiness is, is, is based upon your circumstances. If things go good today, I'm happy. If things go bad, I'm sad. If, if I get something that I want, I'm happy. If I lose something that I wanted, then I'm sad. And, 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 and happiness is, is based upon the circumstances around you. Joy, though, is something that, that is deep within. You can, you, can, you can lose everything and still have joy if you're content with what you have. And James says, let's talk about what you have. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word meet means literally you fall into trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a part that I want us to talk about today because he's going to talk about how we respond to trials. And, and I want to give you 10 different reasons that, that God allows trials into our lives. Again, James is not saying just put on a happy face and, 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 and smile and pretend that everything's okay when it's not. But he's saying there's something that we have as believers that dwells and lives within us that allows us to have joy even in the midst of the most terrible circumstances. And part of that is going to be how we view those trials. So he says, what I want you to do is is not just to put on a happy face, but I want you to choose this joy, this deep abiding contentment that's based upon the conviction that God is sovereign. Here's the key to joy. The key to joy is understanding who's in control. If I understand that God is sovereign and that God is in control, then even when bad things come, I can go back to the promises of God's word that say that my God will supply all of my needs, that that my God takes even the worst and can turn it around for good, that my God is a God that can take the, the worst of circumstances and he can accomplish his purposes and his goals and his vision for my life. That's, that's the key to joy is understanding who's in control. Because if God's not in control... And if I think that I've got to be in control and I'm not in control and my world is falling apart, then everything and all that joy is gone. And so the key to this joy is to understand who is in control. And so this morning he says, I want you to count it all joy. Let me, let me just start. We'll come back and we'll unpack these verses next week. But let me start today and give you 10 reasons that, that God allows trials. You ever had somebody ask you the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You ever wrestle with that question yourself? I think at it, 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 some point in life, all of us, at some different level, we've all wondered about that. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why is it that when I try to live for the Lord, things just sometimes seem to fall apart? And, and the more I want to go forward with God, the more difficult it seems to grow. Why is that? Well, I'm going to give you 10 reasons that God allows these trials into our lives today. If you've got one of those yellow sheets, pull it out and jot this down. And here's why I want you to jot this down. Not because I think that what I say is the most important stuff that you'll ever hear. But it's been said that either you are in the middle of a trial or you're coming out of a trial or you're soon going to be headed into a trial. So whether you're in the middle of it, whether you're just coming out of a trial or whether you're about to head into a trial that you may not even know exists, these 10 things can help you keep perspective and can help you to maintain your joy as you go through those trials. Now, I'm going to go quick this morning 
because we do have a lot to cover, and I want to leave some, some time for this, this baptism celebration that we're going to have here in a little while. So we'll try to flash some stuff on the screen. I'm going to, instead of be flipping in your Bibles back and forth, I'm going to go quick through these scriptures and just give them to you. But you, you've got them jotted down already on your handout, and you can look at them as you, as you get back home and, and kind of walk through this. So 10 reasons that God allows trials in our life. The first is this, to prove the depth of our faith. God allows a trial to come into our life to prove the depth of our faith, to help us to see, is my faith real? Is it deep? Is it solid? Is it growing? Or is it absent? So when trials come into our lives, the way that we respond to trials gives us a measurement of how deep our faith is. If our faith is deep, you've met people. Listen, when when I first moved to Vinton 30 years ago, I began to meet some of these heroes of the faith that lived all around us. And I meet these people and say, man, their faith is rock solid. Man, they are, they are these giants in, in the spiritual world that, that walk with God. And it seems like no matter what happens, they, nothing shakes them. What is it? And then as I began to visit in the homes of the people around our church, I heard their stories. And this one lost a brother. And this one lost a husband. And this one had a terrible car wreck. And this one, and, and, and you hear their stories and you go, oh my gosh, what made them strong and what strengthened their faith was not the good things that happened, but was the tough things that they went through and they clung to God and their faith grew and they put down roots of faith and, and they began to grow this. It's not the people who have never had a tragedy. It's, it's many times those who've been through the toughest of things and, and, and the trials that we go through prove the depth of our faith. Now, it, the, the, when, when God sends a trial, it's to test us or to prove us. It's not to prove you wrong, but to show you where you're at. It's a snapshot of where you are at that moment. So if you face a trial this afternoon, how you respond to that trial is going to give you a good snapshot of where you're at in your faith walk with God. Trials make us better or they make us bitter. That They grow us in the Lord or they destroy what we thought was there. But either way, they reveal what's going on inside of us. The stuff that happens outside of us simply reveals what's going on inside of us. And so it proves the depth of our faith. Habakkuk is a prophet in the Old Testament. And God has just announced through, through Habakkuk and, 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 and through visions to Habakkuk that, that God is, is, is bringing disaster upon his people, that destruction is about to come. And Habakkuk, in the middle of that trial, reveals what's going on in his heart. Look at this verse in Habakkuk three seventeen and 18. Just being told how bad it's, it's fixing to get. And look what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the, oil of, of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's pretty dire. Everything that, that, that's a part of our economy is about to crash, he says. Everything that we need to survive is about to be taken away from us. That's trials. Yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Regardless of what the circumstances are like, I'm going to take joy in the Lord. Why? Because Habakkuk had that relationship 
with God. He had that deep abiding joy that was there. These tests that come, these trials that come our way help to prove our, our trust and our faith in the Lord. They, they prove it to be strong or they prove it to be weak or they prove it to be non-existent. But either way, as I go through that trial, I realize where I stand with God and I can make changes. I can, I can continue to cling and continue to grow or I can realize, man, I thought I had faith, but I must not have faith. I, I need to pursue that and I need to, to, to see about building that up. In Job, we all know the story of Job, how he lost everything that he had. And Job wrestles with God for, for 40 chapters, man. He wrestles with, with why God allowed this tragedy to come in his life. Everything that he owned was taken away. Uh, his kids were taken away. Everything that was, was of value in that day was stripped away from Job. And, and really all that Job was left with was his wife who said to him, Job, just curse God and die. And Job couldn't make sense of it. Friends came and sat alongside of him, and they began to say, Job, you must be a sinner. You must be messed up, man. You need to get right with God. And Job wrestled and said, I think I'm right with God. At the end of that struggle, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, Job says this. He says, I had heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. This trial, this tragedy, this stuff that I've been through, I had always heard, God, about how great you were and how powerful you were. I had heard it with my ear, but after going through this trial, I now see it with my own eyes. Therefore, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I change my mind, God, that you owe me an explanation. I see now more clearly after going through this trial. So the first thing that God does is to, the reason he allows trials is to prove the depth of our faith. The second thing and the second reason that he lets us go through trials is to develop our Christian character. He is trying to grow us up. And that's what James says here in our verse today. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. And if you let steadfastness have its full effect, in other words, you let it do its work, then you can be made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, he's not talking about perfect like sinless. But perfect means mature, grown up in the Lord. If you let this, this faith produce steadfastness and you let steadfastness do the work inside of you that needs to be done, then you will be made mature and complete and, and your faith will not be lacking is what James is saying. And so it helps us to develop this Christian character in our lives. The second thing it does in, 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 or in Romans chapter 5, it shows us another verse about how that suffering develops this character for those who allow it to do its work. Now, it's, it's human nature when trials come for us to try to figure a way out as quick as we can. We get in trouble, we want to get out. We get thrown in jail, we want somebody to bail us out tomorrow. We, 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 we get ourselves in, 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 in a bind and we want relief instantly. We have a, an illness and we want to take a pill and let that go away. But, but look at how God works through the process of trials. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know. We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us, he says. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. There is a process, and that process begins with suffering. But suffering produces certain things. It gives us great endurance, the ability to, to withstand underneath a heavy load. It produces character. That character produces hope, and that hope never disappoints us 
because it's built in him. So God allows us to go through trials in order to develop our Christian character. There's a third reason that God allows us to go through trials, and that is to help us to develop this endurance so that we can endurance for, for greater usefulness. So to develop endurance for greater usefulness. In other words, God's trying to grow us up so that he can use us in bigger and better ways. Sometimes you just say, just let me be immature. <laughs> just, just let me just sit still. I'd be happy, God, just to be average. But God's not happy to leave us there. He wants to build this endurance and, and use us in a greater way. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, verses 33 and 34 are going to list some ways that these people were, were able to, to survive and the way they were able to thrive in the midst of their trials. But I want you to, as I read this, I want you to, to, to remember this, that every victory that he's going to list here required a battle. You can't have a victory if you don't have a battle. And so he talks about the victories, but behind every one of these victories, there is a battle that took place. These guys, he says, he says they, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They wouldn't have been able to conquer kingdoms if there hadn't been a battle. They, they enforced justice. There, there wouldn't have been the, the need for the enforcement of justice if there hadn't been injustice. He says they, they obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. That means somebody was being attacked by lions. They quenched the power of the fire, so they were walking through fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Somebody was trying to kill them. They were made strong out of their weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight, these armies that attacked them. So we, we love to read the story and go, man, look at what they did. They stopped the mouths of the lions. They put out fires. They, they, they escaped the edge of the sword. They did that because they were in the middle of trials. And those victories wouldn't have come had there not been trials. And through those victories and through those trials, they gained endurance and they became useful. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, for the sake of Christ, in other words, to serve God's purpose, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Most of us would like to avoid those things. Paul says, I'm okay in the middle of that. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's in the middle of the trials that we learn that, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That God does things in us and through us and for us that we couldn't explain or we couldn't experience if we were not allowed to go through some trials. So fourth reason that God allows trials. And that is to keep us humble and dependent upon him. To keep us humble and dependent upon him. Remember Paul had that thorn in the flesh that he talked about, and he pleaded with God again and again to take it away. Look at why God allowed that trial in his life. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul had had these revelations where God showed him glimpses of heaven. And he says to keep me from getting prideful and becoming conceited. A thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me in order to keep me from becoming conceited. So sometimes the trials that God puts in our lives are just to keep us humble and remind us how much we need him to get through the day-to-day -day stuff. Pride is destructive in our lives. Pride can derail us. Pride always comes before the fall. 
And God says, look, I, there's times I just got I to I gotta work to keep you humble so that you don't grow prideful and you don't forget who it is that's actually doing the work. It's the fifth reason that God allows trials in our lives. And that is to reveal God's power and God's provision. God's power and his provisions. Second Corinthians, back to chapter 12 where we were just a minute ago. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in the flesh. That it should leave me. But he said to me, look, here's God's power and God's provision. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. So there's times that, that God allows us to walk into situations where we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how we're going to handle it. We don't know how we're going to get through it. And God does that to show us that he always shows up and that he's always on time and that he always provides just what we need. Paul says, I don't know how I can be effective with this thorn in my flesh. And God says, I'm going to show you about my grace and I'm going to teach you about my provisions and my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. So that's a purpose for this. In Hebrews chapter 11, again, God does the impossible on the people's behalf. He, he's listing this roll call of faith, and he lists all these different people who walk with God in the way that God moved in their lives. He says, and time would, would fail me to, to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong uh, out of weakness and became mighty in war and put those foreign armies to flight. God did the impossible for them. He showed them his power and his provision to do what needed to be done so that the kingdom of God could advance. The sixth thing that, that God does and the sixth reason that God allows trials into our lives. And I know I'm going fast, and I know this is a lot to absorb. We're going we're gonna to pick these things apart and, and include these later in this series, so stick with us. But this is kind of the, the overview of where we're headed. The sixth reason that God allows trials is to teach us to value the spiritual over the physical. The, the physical really is all that we know. When, when you see a person moving toward death you see them trying to cling to life and to hang on because it's all we know but sometimes trials in our life help us to let go of the physical and to begin to long for the spiritual uh, Moses went through this transformation where he, remember he was placed in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter found him floating down the river. She takes him and raises him and he grew up thinking for a while that he was the son of the Pharaoh. He was educated, he was taken care of, he was given the best of everything in Egypt and it would have been very easy for him to just enjoy those pleasures throughout life. But there came a moment where Moses understood who he was that he was not an Egyptian, that he was a Hebrew, and the Hebrews were slaves. And for him to leave the, the Pharaoh's palace and to be identified with the slaves in the brick pits meant his whole life was going to change. It was, a, it was a moment in time where he was faced with a decision. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called 
the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking at the spiritual more than the physical. And and when God allows trials into our lives, it brings those things into perspective. You ever seen somebody go through a, a, a tragedy, whether it's their house burning to the ground or a bad automobile accident or some other thing that blows through town and does destruction? And at the end of it all, they look at each other and they say, we may have lost everything, but we still have each other. We may have lost everything, but we still have our life. Shannon, Jennifer, y'all been through that. Different ones of you have faced those kind of moments where everything that you, you've known physically is gone. And all that's left is life. And you go, at least we have our life. It teaches us. Trials teach us to value the spiritual over the physical and to put those things in priority. It also shifts our focus, number seven, to shift our focus toward heaven. So it shifts our focus toward heaven. When, when trials begin to beset us, we reach this point, and, and you've probably all experienced this with, with family members or grandparents or parents, where, where you watch them suffer for so long, and you watch the trials become so difficult that you finally reach that point where you just want to let them go and let them be with Jesus. It shifts our focus away from this life toward the next, from, from here toward heaven. Paul, Paul says in Philippians 1, I am hard-pressed between the two. He was struggling between staying and, and, and working with the church or, or wanting to go on and be with Jesus. And he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The more Paul struggled, the more he wanted to go home and be with Jesus. It helps us to disconnect from this world and to, to be focused upon the next world. Second Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 18, he, he's talking about how that, that we know Jesus that, and, and God that raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us, and, and he bring with us into your presence. For, here it is for your sake, so that as my grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, that's the earthly, but to the things that are unseen, that's the heavenly. For the things that are seen are transient, here today and gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So it helps us shift our focus toward heaven. The eighth thing that trials do is that it reveals our first love. Trials reveal our first love. What is it that we love the most? I can tell you what you love the most. It's the thing that when you lose, you're the maddest about. That's what you love the most. The thing that you grieve the most if you were to lose it. What's the one thing you can't do without? That's what you love the most in your mind. And and trials make us angry because they threaten the things that we want. I I want an easy life, and trials challenge that. I want to keep this beautiful house that I've built, and hurricanes challenge that. 
And, and trials reveal what we really value the most. It, it reveals our first love, our, our true heart. One of the best examples of somebody who passed this test is the story of Abraham with his son Isaac. Remember that? God had promised Abraham and Isaac for years and years and years that they would have a son, and through that son, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And the son comes, and they're enjoying him, and they're raising him, and everything's going great. And then one day, God shows up and says, Abraham, won't you take your son Isaac, your only son? And I want you to go up on the mountain that I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham's whole identity, his whole future, his whole everything was wrapped up in that son. But there was one thing that Abraham loved more than Isaac. And that was the God that gave him Isaac. And God says, I want you to do this. And Abraham gets up early the next morning, gathers the wood, gathers the sun, gathers everything and takes off. And he goes to that mountain builds the altar, he ties his son, he lays his son on the altar, and he draws a knife to kill and to sacrifice his son. And God says in Genesis twenty two twelve, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Trials bring into focus what we love the most. Abraham loved that son, and what God was asking him to do did not make any sense to any one of us. But it revealed to Abraham, God already knew, it revealed to Abraham that God really was number one. Abraham could say it all day long, I love God more than I love anything else in the world. But it's not until the thing that we love second most comes into play that we realize what's, what our true love really is. The book of Revelation the church of Ephesus. John is writing to them and he's, he's saying, man, there's a lot of things you guys are doing great. And he lists off some things that the church is doing good, but then he turns to him and he says, but there is one thing that I have against you. Revelation 2, verse 4. You have abandoned your first love, the love that you had at first. So I want you to remember where you have fallen. I want you to repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, he says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. We can do a lot of good stuff. But if God is not our first love, trials will reveal that. And there's times that God allows trials to come. And it's to reveal what we love the most. Sometimes trials come and take people from us that are precious. And and we have to choose between whether we're going to worship the creator or what he has created. And trials help to put that in perspective. How we respond to that trial, that crisis, that loss, reveals whether I love God more and I trust him more, or whether I was looking to that person or that thing more. It reveals it, puts it into focus. It reveals our first love. Number nine, the ninth reason that God allows trials is to equip us to comfort and encourage others. To comfort and encourage others. There's things that you're going to go through. And it's going to be tough. And God's going to show up. And he's going to help you through this. And there may be moments in the middle of that trial you don't think you can make it. And then God shows up and he does the impossible. And he gets you through that. 
And you look back and you go, why did I have to go through that? And it was to prepare you to encourage and to minister to somebody else down the road. You say, well, that's pretty crummy. (laughs) I had to go through this so I could help somebody else. Sometimes that's the only person that can help is somebody who's walked right where that person's walking. Jesus says to Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. But watch this. Jesus already knew that Satan would deny him. And this is what he says, that, that Peter would deny him. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, you're going to fall away. You're going to go through a trial. You're actually going to fail this trial. But it's not fatal. When you bounce back, when you repent, when you turn back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. This event of denying Jesus three times was going to shape the rest of Peter's ministry. Shape how Peter viewed others, how he treated others. His ministry mindset would be changed. He would be able to comfort and encourage others who've walked away, who've turned their back, who've denied Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And we do so with the comfort, he says, which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we've suffered. God allows us to go through trials to prepare us to be greater ministers to others down the road. To, to be able to point others who are going through a crisis who may not have the same faith that we have, that, that, that God was faithful to you and that God will be faithful to them. He grows you so that when others go through a trial, you can put your arm around their shoulder, you can walk with them, you can lift their burden, and you can say, I want to walk with you. I know what it feels like to go what you've been through because I've been through that as well. And let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you how God showed up and how he helped me because the way that he's helped me, he can help you. The 10th thing this morning, 10th reason that God allows us to go through trials is to help us identify with Christ. There is no one who suffered more than Jesus suffered on our behalf. And as we face trials, we get a small glimpse, a small taste of what Jesus must have gone through to complete the work that God had given for him to do. When it seems like all of the world is against us, we look at Christ hanging on the cross alone, and we realize he knows what that's like. He's been there. He's done that. When we pray, and it seems like our our prayers just are, are so hard to even find the words to pray. We read in Hebrews 5 that in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was here on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. 
You ever prayed like that? Jesus understands. He's been there. He's done that. But he prayed to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Notice this. He prayed to the God who could save him from death. And he was heard. But Jesus still died. But he knew his father heard him. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, complete, mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's the Son of God. And when I suffer and you suffer, we get a small taste of what Jesus went through on our behalf. Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we go through these trials, it it reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us that he's walked there as well. And we can identify with our Savior a little bit better. So as we wrap this up this morning, let me ask you this question. Happiness and joy. Happiness based on the circumstances around you all going well. Joy, this eternal, internal, abiding thing that the Holy Spirit brings to us is Is that abiding joy deep within you? The abiding joy that circumstances can't change? In in order for us to be joyful in trials, the way that James says that we are to be, we have got to have this biblical view of the sovereignty of God. We've got to realize that our God controls all things. That evil cannot and will not come into your life unless it first passes through the hands of God. And he would not allow it to pass through his hands if he were not going to use it for his glory and for our good. And so when evil comes, and those of us that live in southwest Louisiana know what that's like. Trials come. Tough things happen. Is there that abiding joy inside of you? Because if it's not, this may be the first test you've got to look at and go, why isn't there joy in the middle? Now, I'm not saying that you're happy about what's going on. But there is a peace and a joy that that resides inside of you no matter what you see on the outside. That starts with a biblical view of, of the sovereignty of God. So while James is not a theological book, it contains a whole lot of theology that undergirds everything that James is saying. Faith that God is not just in control, but that he is at work transforming us that he is a God who can take even the worst of things and bring them around for our good if the joy is missing then chances are your understanding of God's sovereignty is is underdeveloped and when God's sovereignty is lacking in in our in our perspective we tend to grow angry when things don't go our way we tend to want to be resentful and, and and seek revenge when others do harm to us And instead of having that mindset that Joseph had when his brother sold us off, when Potiphar's wife turned him in and and accused him falsely, when everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and then he meets back with his brothers at the end, and he looks at his brothers and they're scared to death that Joseph's going to put them to death, and he says, you guys meant this for my harm. 
But the God that's sovereign, that's in control, meant this for my good. And he did this that we might save the nation. That's a person who understood the sovereignty of God. And if the sovereignty of God is, is not settled in our hearts, then, then we, will, we will ebb and flow back and forth again and again. And, and this peace that God intends for us to have and the joy that's supposed to reside inside of us will, will, will be absent or, or minimal at best. And so it begins and ends with this issue of sovereignty. Happiness is nearsighted. It just looks at what we can see in the moment. But joy is eternal because it looks beyond that. The Bible says that Jesus, because of the joy that was set before him, was able to endure the cross. didn't say that the cross was enjoyable. But Jesus could go through the cross because he saw the salvation that it was going to offer you and me and everyone at the foot of that cross. And so for the joy set before him, he could endure the cross. And the joy that God intends to, to do for us. If God came to you today and said this, and we'll close with this. I've got a plan to grow you in your spiritual faith to where you can become a spiritual giant. And, and you can stand in the midst of anything. If I've got a plan to be able to do that. Would you say, Lord, I want that plan. I want to be that spiritual giant. And then God comes back and says, okay, but the plan's going to involve some suffering. It's going to put you through some trials. It's going to get you there, and you're going to be that person that you've always wanted to be. But to get there, you've got to go through some stuff. Many of us at that point say, whoa, 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 hang on. I don't know if I want to go there. It's the only way. You want to be spiritually mature, complete, lacking in nothing? James says you're going to go through some trials because that's what's required to get you there. So I want to ask you to, to really chew on this this week and to really think and to come back next week. And let's talk some more about how that God moves us through these trials, how God begins to form this character in us, and how God continues to grow our faith. Finally, some people ask the question, isn't what I want important? You're talking about God puts me through these things, and sometimes I don't have a choice. I just have to go through them because God's got a plan. Don't I get a choice? And I would say this, as a Christian... The answer is I get a choice whether I'm going to cooperate with God and and see that growth or whether I'm going to fight against God and miss that growth. We, We get a choice. But our choice is to walk with God and to work with God or to run from God and to remain spiritually immature or even lost. And that's a choice that we've all got to we've got to answer. Trials are not fun. Every one of us, if we could, would avoid those. The trials are going to come. And when they come, how we respond determines whether we grow or whether we don't. So stick with us in this series, and let's work through this together, and let's watch how God begins to grow our faith and how he begins to do these things that he wants to do so that he can use us to reach other people. I want us to pray together. And uh, I just want to say to you, if you've got some of these questions today and you want to hang out afterwards, let's talk. Let's visit. If you're not sure that your faith is real and you want to make sure that you've got faith with Jesus, like we're about to see these two girls profess their faith in Jesus, and and you want to know that you know Jesus in a real way, let's sit down, let's visit, and let's talk. We'll hang out as long as we need to, and we'll do that. Let's pray.